the Ask All Leaders Reading Podcast with Jeff Barton. So I am Dr. Lee Elliott Major. I am the Chief Executive of the Sutton Trust. I'm a trustee of the Education Endowment Foundation. I'm shortly to become the first Professor of Social Mobility at Exeter University. Yeah, congratulations on that. Um, for those people who don't know about the Sutton Trust, if there are some, and the Education Endowment Foundation, just give us the, the flavour of those, why they were set up and what they do. So the Sutton Trust is an independent foundation with the mission to improve social mobility. Originally it was to improve social mobility through education, but it's broadened its, its goal uh, more recently. We might talk about a bit about that later. Um, and essentially it, it helps about 5,000 young people a, a year. Mostly these are uh, young people from low middle income backgrounds. Um, who might have the grades to consider going to some of the uh, leading universities but don't, for whatever reason, um, end up going there. So we give them some uh, advice and support. They go to uh, summer schools during the summer at, at universities and really try to debunk the myths around these, these elite institutions. So we've helped about 25,000 people, we reckon, in the last 20 years. Um, so so that, that's the Sutton Trust. And we produce lots of research as well. So there's, the, the Sutton Trust has uh, unusually a, a, a sort of a dual sort of a, approach, which is to help young people. That's the sort of do part of the trust but also to produce lots of interesting research. And you will have seen in today's papers, for example, uh, a research about uh, academy uh, chains. But we, we put the issue of social mobility um, on the map in 2005. That was one of our research reports. So, so we produce research that really tries to change the agenda and, and, and advocate things to government and challenge people around that, those issues. But we also do a, a host of programmes for 5,000 young people a year. And we're talking about your book written with Stephen Machin, which is Social Mobility and Its Enemies. So I'm, I'm interested in just talking about that. And essentially, when you talk about social mobility, you get, this, this is me <laughs> simplifying, okay, two views. One is that education is the engine room of social mobility, and that's the big responsibility we've got. And other people saying, well, education may contribute to it, but actually there's lots of things which are far more important to that. So just to kind of explain what do we, we need to know about social mobility and education. So one of the unusual, unexpected findings, I think, in the book, Social Bulletin and Its Enemies, that may have surprised some people, is that education can only do so much. And I think there's a lot of expectation put on teachers um, to essentially solve all of society's problems. And I feel, I feel that's got actually, that's got worse in, in, in recent years. What we're not saying in the book is that education doesn't have an impact. It has a huge impact. But what the evidence suggests is, is that it's counterbalancing the huge forces of inequalities outside the school gates. So we think actually in this country, we're doing a pretty good job in terms of counterbalancing inequality. If you're really serious about improving social mobility, in a broad sense, uh, both in terms of moving people to the top of society, but also just giving people decent jobs in the places they live. If you're really serious about that, you have to tackle both educational inequality, but also income inequality outside the school gates. There's no evidence that goes against that. And the only countries we know that have improved social mobility rates are those that have more equal equality outside the school gates, but also a good education system. So that means what? That there's essentially you never make progress unless you tackle issues to do with poverty and that? Yeah, absolutely. And when I talk about inequality, I'm not talking about just 
financial uh, earnings type inequality. I'm, I'm talking about cultural, um, social capital, what the, what the social, sociologists call it. Uh, I'm talking about wealth, you know, whether you own a house or not is increasingly a sign of the haves and have-nots in society. So I think if, if you're serious, you have to look at things like taxation, actually, and, and redistribution and inheritance tax, all those sorts of, of issues that politicians don't tend to like to, to consider, alongside, of course, the always the efforts to improve schools. And, and I think there's some issues, some really big fundamental issues, actually, about the education system we could improve. But it, 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 will, it will contribute to helping social mobility. It will never solve it on its own. Now, we're recording this on a day when uh, your organisation is in the news because of some research which is about multi-academy trusts and what the headlines are saying is essentially that there has been, how should we put it, a significant sense of disappointment that lots of maths simply have failed to make a real impact on children's lives in disadvantaged areas. That's essentially it. And that's been responded to in a fairly political way in some areas and other people are saying, like I'm saying, hang on a minute, maybe this was always a bit unrealistic and maybe it needs a bit more time. Do you want to just talk about what we're hearing today? So, so one of the uh, findings that we found, in, in fact, to be honest, we've, we've found this year in and year out o- o- over many years now, is that the type of school that you have has actually very little impact on the results for disadvantaged young people. In fact, results for all pupils. And it comes down, the evidence would suggest, to some simple things that all teachers will instinctively know, and that is it's the quality of the teaching in the classroom. That's what drives um, the the results of of children, as well as, of course, the the inequalities outside the, the school gates. So... So governments tend to like uh, the, the, the more sort of structural reforms. You know, we've got a new type of school. And, of course, we all know uh, the academisation of, 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 of schooling in the last, what, decade or, or so now. Um, it, you know, there are some academies which do do some very good teaching in the classroom, who do have very, very good heads, etc., etc. But then there are, there are others that will be struggling. It, you know, the school type doesn't really impact on the results. You'll have always have good grammars and poor grammars, poor academies, good academies, good community schools, not so good, who need improvement. It, 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 it's a universal fact of education. Yeah. And so focusing on the teacher, the quality of teaching clearly is a given. You say something else in the book which resonates with something that Askell is looking at, and that is that politicians have tended to fixate on top-end achievement. So they've tended to look at what we'd now call the grade 7, 8s and 9s. Your book makes very clear something that we've been saying this year. There were 190,000 young people who got a grade 3 or lower in English and maths. That's, that's after 12 years of pe- people teaching them. And what you're saying in there is you have to be able to tackle that end. It's not a very glamorous end, it's a grind. But that is one way in which you're going to give the kind of essential skills and knowledge for young people. Is that, is that analysis correct? Yeah, I think our system is failing significant numbers of young people. And to be frank, it's not those at the top end, if if you like, of that academic spectrum. It's those that are struggling in school for all sorts of reasons. I think we need a big debate about how we educate uh, um, those those young people who for, at the moment the system is failing so as, as you say I think it's around 20 25 percent depending on how you define 20 25 percent of our people leave school without the basic skills to get on in life when we looked at the data the the, the tragedy was that we found that, that was the case 
each year for at least the last few decades. So I think there's, there's a lot of talk about education, but not enough debate about those young people that I believe the, the system is failing. I think there's some questions about the curriculum that we offer to those children. I think it, it, it also is about the debate of vocational versus academic. I believe, you know, and I'm a PhD theoretical physicist, of course, I believe the system has become too academic. You know, I've got a son going through GCSEs at the moment. I, I think that it, it, you know, if you were a conspiracy theorist, we, we've created a system that the middle classes can utilise to their own their own good. So, so you know, if you have a very academic system which is gameable, eminently gameable, and you've got parents who can invest in private tutoring, and you, you know, I, I think we have a system that has almost been designed to retain to sort of the middle class to retain their their, their position in society. Um, so, I think we we need really quite radical thinking of uh, the, the curriculum and, and how we measure actually talent. Uh, in, in, or success in, in the school system. Uh, so you set yourself up to be called an enemy of promise there, don't you? Because the way that can be interpreted uh, is that, uh, well, so you, you think that for children from disadvantaged areas, they won't be able to have the same kind of knowledge as children from advantaged areas. You're not saying that, I suspect, are you? So just explain what you are saying. Yeah, I think these, these are really tricky debates, actually, because what, what I'm not saying is, you know, there's one route for the poor and there's one route for the rich, and the rich, you know, have the high-status route and, and, the, and the poor have the low-status route. That, that's certainly not what I'm saying. And that is one of the big difficulties in this, this debate, I think, because you do want to improve status for those routes that aren't acad- academic. I think we've come a long way on the, the apprenticeship side of, of, of things. We've still got a long way to go there. You know, your background shouldn't determine which route you take, but nor should we expect everyone to go down the super academic route either. And I think it's getting that balance. It, it, it's, it's, you, to, you, you know, fulfilling everyone's potential um, in, in different ways is, is the thing. And, and, and listen, that is a tough challenge. I do realise that. But if you're really serious about social mobility, I think you would probably prioritise that challenge uh, more than the top end. I think the top end challenge is important because if you don't get people from, from different backgrounds into the top positions in government and society, then you don't get a good debate about these other issues that we're talking about. You know, there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that. And things like Brexit, I believe, was a symptom we talk about in the book, was also a symptom of low sociability because you had this incredibly uh, detached elite at the top of government that was not in tune with the communities around the country. And I think that was one of the factors that led to Brexit. So, so you do need diversity at the top so that we get into the big issues that actually affect normal people around the country. Yeah. Now, we started this by saying that schools can only do so much, so they're important, but they're not the only thing that's important. Clearly, the other thing that is important is your background, your parents. Right? Now, I remember uh, Becky Francis talking about that, the, the, a kind of perception that with parents, even if they have high aspirations for their children, there is a kind of cultural knowledge. So what, what's university like, what is it about, and so on, but also a network of people that is important to you. Could you just talk about what, what we know about the kind of parenting part of this? So in the book, we do talk about this thing called the educational arms race. And what, what we found is increasing evidence um, of... Uh, and listen, I'm not, I don't want to... You know, I'm a middle... I've become a middle-class parent. You know, I, uh, you know I, I understand that parents want the best for their children. 
But what is happening is people are getting increasingly intensive and stressed, actually, about their, their children's prospects. Amidst all this talk about, you know, getting them into certain uh, universities or jobs, it feels like that, that sense of competition has got more intense with, it, with every year. So there is increasing evidence that parents will do pretty much anything and everything. <laughs> to get their children into the best schools. I, I say best in inverted commas. Um, so, so we found that there was lots of essentially cheating going on in terms of school admissions. Uh, there sometimes was, of course, buying that house near that, that high-performing school. There were instances we found of parents uh, inventing medical conditions for their children so that they would get on the, the priority list. Um, and then, there's, of course, there's the huge boom in things like private tutoring, which is essentially a middle-class uh, phenomenon. So that's, you know, billions of pounds this now every year that's spent on, on, on uh, education outside the school day. And I think that's an interesting phenomenon, actually. You know, we talk about education policy as if it stops still at 4 o'clock or 3.30. It doesn't. It, it completely blurs. You know, the, the, the world outside the school gates and inside the gates is blurred. We, 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 there's as much tutoring, in a sense, going on, or not quite as much, but a, a significant proportion of tutoring now going on outside the school day. So, so a lot of parents are, are using also their social... So if you, if you look at who gets those you know, exclusive internships once you get through education, what you find also is people use their networks. I think there's a really interesting question for me about where, where is the line drawn in terms of fairness? Because you know, I, I have children. I'm starting to think, well, you know, I want the best for my children, clearly... But how far do you go? You know, do you do you contact all your friends? Do you uh, do you sort of write the letters for them? You know, personal statements for universities. We know that most parents, most middle class will write or help to write those personal statements. So the reason the book was called Social Abilities and Its Enemies was 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 a reflection on, to some extent, we all have to look ourselves in in the mirror and say that we are probably also, to some extent, enemies. Um, you know, now that, that's a difficult uh, debate because the other thing we find is that sadly the prospects for young people today we predict aren't going to get any better, probably going to get worse over the next two decades. I think the last few weeks on Brexit would, would, would uh, consolidate that for me. I think we'll probably, we, we are, the, the current generation I fear will have um, less mobility, however defined, than even the current one. And that makes all this even more intense because there'll be fewer opportunities and, the, and it becomes a very dog-eat-dog society. So I know I'm rambling here, but I, I sort of... One of my fears uh, in writing the book uh, is this sense that we are becoming an increasingly atomistic society and you know, there's those famous words that are attributed to Margaret Thatcher, you know, there's no such thing as society. If Again, if you're really serious about sociability, I think you have to come to some sort of collective action to try and improve it. You have to do something for other people. Now, clearly teachers do that day in, day out, but I think we all need to think about what we do for others. Yeah, so you've got a kind of broader sense of what does success look like, in a sense. It's not about individual, it's about how you work with others, how, they, how you help others. Yeah, I think, you know, I've done a few presentations in, for the civil service and for, for employers on these issues. And, and what's interesting is, is that we, we, we get into discussions about, one, how do you identify talent? And I push people a lot on this because I think because they get so many applications for these, these, these jobs, they tend to use very crude measures of talent, which 
tends to disadvantage those from poorer backgrounds. So again, it comes back to these academic grades. I think there's a lot of talent and there's a lot of evidence for this people that come from more disadvantaged backgrounds that might not quite get those grades but that probably have just as much potential and indeed bring something different to the table by the way from mm. from where they where they come from so there's a, a discussion about how you pick talent I think and I, I would argue for more simple sort of threshold measures both in terms of university colleges and employers where you might have to get over a certain bar but then you know again I would I would argue for random allocation over and above because I, I think we, it's very hard to actually determine who is the very very best over a certain threshold so that we should have a sense of being good enough rather than who's the very best yeah. Um, so I think there's that, and then we get we get into interesting discussions about progression within uh, an organisation, and and I, and I think there a lot of the rewards to people tend to be about their own performance. You know how well they have done individually. I think we need to change society fundamentally in, in, in valuing people who give to others and and and, and enrich other people's lives. You have to get to that if you, if you, if again you're serious about sociability. I would, you know, and I talk to teachers a lot about this, I, I would also, in terms of addressing inequality, I would pay teachers more. And I, I know people are like, oh, obviously he's going to say that, but I do think it's part of that, for me, a broader picture of giving, uh, recognising people who give back to society. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the data on inequality, we tend to give incredible financial rewards to professions that are essentially quite individualistic, you know, mm. and you think of the financial sort of sector. I don't think we can justify the, the money that those elite professions are, are getting compared to those who, for example, have public sector, not just, not just teachers, I mean social workers. Mm. Um, other people, nurses, you know, would be, you know, my partner happens to be a nurse, you know. Um, I think there's sexism in, in these things mm-hmm. as well. You know, it's no coincidence that, uh, particularly in, in primary schools, but also in things like nursing, that the, 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 high, you know, the high numbers of, of females in those professions. And the bankers are largely male. Yeah, yeah. And banks are largely male. Okay, okay. just a couple of other questions. One of the other kind of myths that you challenge in the book is this one that what social mobility means is... Uh, identifying a child in the northeast and then measuring her success by the fact she goes to Oxford mm. as if somehow leaving your roots is a badge of honour yeah, and what, yeah. you, what you're saying here is we ought, we ought to recognise that actually that sense of community loyalty and so on mm. is something which is being denigrated a bit isn't it? Yeah you know I think there's again your background should not prevent you going to say London if you're from the northeast or the southwest if that's what you want to do if you want to go and be I know a top lawyer or, or whatever um, you know London is an amazing place and an, an international city that happens to be in Britain in some way so but I, I fear that that narrative um, dominates the social mobility debate and when I give talks to places outside London I do go outside London um, <laughs> What I find is that people want to do good jobs, but they want to stay in their local community, you know, and I, and I think that's healthy, actually. Mm. I think, um, you know, again, we discuss it in the book, we think we need to be far more radical in redistributing where opportunities are in this country. So that would probably mean actually moving several government departments outside London. London can look after itself, by the way, you know, yeah. it, it will always it will always be okay. I think that you know, one of the interesting things about social mobility 
is we found uh, increasingly divide in terms of where you live. It's not just who you're born to. Uh, it's, it's increasingly when you're born, by the way. That's another thing. You know, August-born children, I'm an August-born, do less when in school. That's, a, that's another debate we can have. But yeah. where you're born has a profound impact on your, your life prospects. Now... That, you know, I, I think, again, it, it's about background not determining where you go. It's giving you the informed choice to either stay in Newcastle or Penzance or wherever it is, if that's what you want to do, or move to, to, a, to another city. Um, now, that, that opens up all sorts of other questions, because I think you do need to improve the amount of opportunities in those places. So that, that is a big debate. I don't, I, you know, I understand that. But I, again, I think these are, you know... Everyone says they support social media when you, when you have a, a chat to people. But actually, when you think through what do we actually need to do, these are quite radical things. And I always say to people that you've got a choice. Either you stick with the current system that we've had, and arguably I'd argue that the class-based system has been here for probably at least a millennium. You know, So you, you stick with that, or you consider these radical things, and that is you know, redistributing opportunities around the country. That is reforming the education system to to nurture all talents vocational creative as well as academic and that is addressing some of the issues of, of profound inequality in terms of um, earnings and, and, and other attributes in society these these are big issues right you can't shy away from them if you believe in social mobility and it needs brave government doesn't it to do any of that yeah. kind of stuff yeah. well that's interesting you know when i talk outside london and, and i you know i fear that uh, the central government will increasingly be um, unable to help in terms of some of these these big issues and and I I, I am encouraging uh, the regions to sort of think about how because there are some things you can do in social in terms of social mobility that are quite simple actually you know I'd love Greater Manchester to sort of take on for example say okay what what would it mean for Greater Manchester to be a more mobile place in 10 years time um, there's an amazing program that the Tutor Trust are, are doing a charity where they get undergraduates in Manchester to tutor young uh, um, uh, pupils in, in schools in the Manchester region. I think every undergraduate should um, have some sort of national service where they give back. Mm. This is what I'm talking about in terms of giving back. Well, one of the dilemmas of social mobility is you get, you get increasingly into sort of dictatorial sort of policies mm. as the more you think about mm. it. Um, I, I don't worry about it so much, but I think if... if Because if, I think those undergraduates would get a lot out of it. I think you'd have to think about giving them some options. Do they want to do tutoring or do they want to do, they want to do something else? Mm-hmm. But I think you get huge value, actually. About it. Every teacher will know this. Helping others mm-hmm. does bring huge rewards. So I think, you, you know, you, you, I, I think each region could... Uh, in, in, in my ideal sort of world, you'd, you'd probably have each region with a social mobility plan, and we would probably evaluate that with my evidence hat on. And and I, I just don't think you can rely on London and the the state system. One of the issues in the book we we talk about is the lack of funding for schools. And, and Jeff, I know you, you've talked a lot about this. When we produce the Sutton Trust Toolkit, which is now the Education Endowment Toolkit, which is you know, what works in the classroom uh, as, as, a, as a guide, uh, an aid for teachers. One of the uh, sort of things we talked about, well, it's not what you spend, it's the how you spend it that, that counts. And that is true, clearly, you know, um, as in everywhere. 
But I now think we've got to the point where there is, there is not enough money in the system. Again, if, if you really want to counterbalance those huge inequalities outside the school gates, you've got to spend more money on disadvantaged students. What we found with the Education Endowment Foundation trials is, unsurprisingly, that, that, that some of the most effective programmes are, are intensive tutoring or one-to-one tutoring. That, that's, that's kind of understandable. Again, if you're a teacher, you probably would, would predict that. The problem is it costs money because then you've got to get the people to do the tutoring, you've got to train them up. So I think, again, if the government is serious about social mobility, then you would um, invest more in schooling. No doubt about that. Last question, and it, hints, uh, it was hinted at by something you talked when you were talking about social class a minute ago. The book very compellingly starts with the story of two Davids, uh, Cameron and Beckham. Mm. Just could you just t- tell tell us that story and, and, and how it frames the debate about social mobility? So, so I used this sort of uh, interesting sort of journalistic technique. I was a journalist, which was to try and use examples of people to flesh out the issues of social ability and, and there's this tale of the two Davids which has got a lot of, lot of attention which, which is good and that is David Cameron at the very top of, of society and, and Cameron happens to be related to King William IV um, and there is this multi-generational elite that have been there and that's the other thing I think that, that people don't realise is if when you look at the very top of society we're not talking about just who your mum and dad were it's who your grandparents and your great 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 grandparents so there is multi-generational persistence at the very top which i would argue is is unhealthy um now what's interesting is then the other david is of course david beckham and he is a one-off in many ways but you know it, it was just um i just wanted to use him as an example of someone who was mo- incredibly mobile um comes from the the east end of, of, of london and, and has been obviously worth hundreds of billions or whatever it is now What's interesting is the Beckhams are using exactly the same sort of hoarding, what we call hoarding strategies, to retain their position in society. So once you get to the elites, you will use all your resources, all your connections um, to keep your children up in those, those elites. So what's really interesting, we only know probably in a hundred years' time, is to have the Beckhams manage to, to um, become a permanent member of that that elite at the top or are they going to bounce back back down again um so so the reason i, I talked about today is, is that we the, the 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 social mobility problem i believe is particularly acute at the bottom and top of society and, and that comes back to what we were talking about in terms of those young people who leave school without any basic skills tend to be from those families from the poorest homes in the country that's been a stubborn problem um you know i and at the top, we've got these multi-generational elites that have been there for a long, long time. And I was going to, we were going to call the book Stuck, you know, because Britain, I believe, is stuck mm. in these debates where we don't challenge these, these issues, but people are also stuck in the positions they're in. Um, but I think those, the bottom and top of society have a disproportionate effect on all of us. So in terms of the cost of society and, them, and, and themselves as... Um, that that bottom uh, end, if for want of a better term, I think affects us all in terms of crime and all the sorts of issues that, that, that when people don't fulfil their potential, we, we have to deal with. And at the top, we suffer because though if you don't have a diversity at the top, I think you get dysfunctional and detached uh, governing elites. And I think you, you end up with things like Brexit. Final thing I would say on all this is that if we don't do something about it, I really do predict that we will have social unrest 
in the next generation. I think there will be a point at which people, you know, normal people, this is not just, by the way, the poorest families, this is probably everyone outside the top 10, 15% of society living it outside London will say, well, actually, you know, what is, what is the point of all this? I, I do think even in Britain, you know, and we've seen riots in, in France recently, mm. interestingly about taxation, mm. I think if you have profound inequality and low social mobility, at some point you will get social unrest. Well, a finally, <laughs> slightly bleak conclusion, but no, it's a great book, Social Mobility and Its Enemies, Lee Elliott Measure. Thanks for talking to me, and also good luck with a new job. Thank you very much. The Ask All Leaders Reading Podcast with Jeff Barton.